Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole. Is the luxury market ready for a post-pandemic makeover? This week, I'll be asking whether the turbulence of recent years has really changed the high-end market forever. From designer handbags to private jets, the luxury sector has been booming for decades, but nothing came with a heftier price tag than the costly COVID pandemic. The global luxury market, including both goods and experiences, shrank by 20% and is now thought to have fallen back to levels last seen in 2015, although that still means it's worth around a trillion dollars. Before COVID, shopping for items such as designer fashion, fragrances and fast cars had become an integral part of the luxury travel experience, generating up to 30% of industry revenues. But travel restrictions turned this tradition upside down, diverting the big spenders to splash their cash domestically. China saw remarkable momentum. Its domestic luxury sector doubled in value and now represents more than 20% of the global market, putting it just behind the Americas, now the largest global market for luxury. The superyacht trade more than stayed afloat as lockdowns led to booming business. Sales of luxury vessels reached a 12-year high in the first nine months of 2021. The option of a mobile holiday home proved deeply appealing to those with deep pockets. But floating fortresses aside, a global conversation around sustainability is making conscious consumerism more fashionable. The second-hand luxury market grew by 65% between 2017 and 2021 reaching $33 billion, while first-hand luxury grew just 12% over the same period. In a recent study, more than 70% of millennials said they'd be willing to spend more on a product if it came from a sustainable brand, suggesting good behavior is becoming good for business. And the very definition of luxury is also changing. Middle market consumers who traditionally saw a $10,000 Hermes Birkin bag as the ultimate status symbol are instead investing in experiences like education, elite sports and refined hobbies. For most of us, retail therapy is buying a new pair of jeans or a new handbag. For the super rich, though, it could be buying anything, including a yacht. The meaning of a luxury purchase varies greatly, in other words. Despite the cost of living at a record high, the super-rich seem impervious to inflation as products with high price tags continue to sell. But just what does living in the lap of luxury mean today? Let's find out by speaking to Luca Solka, Senior Research Analyst of Global Luxury Goods at the Investment Research Institute, Sanford C. Bernstein. Luca. The very definition of luxury seems to have changed over the years. Everybody has their own, own version of luxury, doesn't it? Um, how, is, how is it decided whether it's luxurious or not? <laughs> it's a good question. I think luxury is different for everyone. And we could argue that luxury is what you cannot afford. And that is clearly very different for every people, or, or, or better said, luxury is what you aspire to. And we have seen uh, differentiated offers in almost every product category. So for sure, the traditional personal luxury goods like watches, uh, jewelry, handbags, and so on. But, but you could argue that in almost every category, you now have 
an upgraded uh, and improved version that could potentially represent a small luxury, even in sandwiches, uh, when you look at it. In the old days, if you'll forgive the expression, perhaps luxury was only available to the upper classes. But should that change now to the moneyed classes? I think that uh, if, we, if we look at uh, the mainstream luxury goods industry, uh, those brands and those products are mostly relevant to people that change and improve their social status. If you've been rich, rich for, for a long time, you have less of a need. And the reason is that once you improve your social status, you want to find a confirmation that that is indeed the case. You want to first of all have reassurance for yourself. And when you buy luxury brands, that gives you reassurance. So in a way, you project your ideal self into those products and you become your ideal self by buying them. Everyone wants to look good on Instagram. So this aspiration to distinction and, uh, and, and standing out has become fairly universal, especially if we look at Western markets. Has COVID, Luca, changed the luxury market? In a way, I guess it has. Uh, on the one hand, in 2020, when the lockdowns were called, people could save on a lot of essentials. They didn't have to buy their train tickets as they didn't have to commute to work. So we had a broader consumer audience uh, benefiting the luxury goods industry in 2020 with middle class and lower middle class consumers being able to afford enterprise products into the mainstream luxury goods categories. And I think that uh, another category that has benefited from uh, COVID has been uh, jewelry. Uh, jewelry is typically seen as, as a safe heaven and uh, as a bit of a wise purchase. So when things are bad, and uh, for sure they were in uh, 2020, Jewelry has enjoyed quite a significantly strong uh, demand tailwind, which has continued in 2021 for that matter. Uh, there are, by one estimate, 2,800 billionaires in the world. Uh, do you think there's more or less resentment uh, about people who are super rich? And I wonder also whether they're also having to perhaps hide more or protect more their luxurious lifestyles. I think that resentment on the rich depends on two major variables. First, how deeply divided the society is, if it is extremely divided with very high levels of income and wealth inequality or else being equal, there's probably going to be more resentment. And for sure, if we look at our own societies, we see that income inequality and wealth inequality has continued to increase in the past few decades. The other important criteria is uh, upper mobility. If there's uh, the opportunity for people that have less to work hard and get to have more, uh, then I think resentment is going to be less of a problem. By contrast, our social pyramid is frozen and people have the feeling that they will always be at the bottom of it, then resentment could uh, potentially increase. Uh, I, I think that one of the reasons why you didn't have much of this problem in China is that everyone is getting better. And, uh, and as a consequence, there's uh, less resentment towards the rich than we have maybe 
in some of the European uh, markets. Why, why should that be? Because the microeconomic growth in China has been very strong. And when GDP grows, there's opportunity. And uh, you can enjoy opportunities at all levels of the social pyramid. The U.S. has been growing at a lower level. And even uh, lower has been Europe, or at least some parts of Europe. When GDP growth is stagnant, opportunities are very rare and people get to feel that they have no better option to improve their lifestyle and, uh, and their condition. It's predicted, Luca, that affluent millennials and Generation Z consumers will make up 70% of sales and 130% of market growth. And just in three years' time, 2025, are brands changing to serve the rich millennials? I think they are. If we look at uh, the most important secular changes we've observed in the market, uh, there's clearly been a shift towards informality across various product categories, for sure in apparel, but clearly also in footwear, where sneakers have been reigning supreme, uh, and in various accessories. So think about the success of the Rolex watch, which is informal in its, uh, in its uh, essence. So I think that uh, the move to streetwear and the, the ability that mega brands like Vuitton and Gucci have shown uh, to integrate those new codes and those new styles into their brand DNA uh, is getting them prepared to embrace and uh, satisfy younger consumers. Lucas Salka, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Thank you. One of the biggest shifts in the world of luxury is the birth of a more shall we say, planet-friendly customer. Sustainability, in their eyes, is high on their luxury agenda. So how are some of the world's biggest luxury brands adapting? Well, someone helping them to do just that is Diana Verde-Nieto, co-founder of Positive Luxury, and Diana joins me now. Explain what Positive Luxury is and the raison d'etre behind it. Positive Luxury is a accelerator that helps companies to accelerate towards a new climate economy. And that means incorporating the principle of social, environmental and innovation into um, the corporate strategy and in the business practices. Is it getting easier to convince the buyers of luxury goods they should think more sustainably? Or even not oh. just the customers, but the people making the goods? I have to say that this is the first time that I have actually career satisfaction. <laughs> um, because, yes, I mean, uh, if you think about pre-pandemic, uh, sustainability was something that it was not at the fore of many organizations and definitely not of uh, many people. And what the pandemic has done, it's really um, enabled us, all of us, to pause and think about our relationship with the world, uh, nature, and amongst other people. And since then, actually, sustainability has become not just an easy sell, but an easy conversation to have with everyone, especially with the younger audiences. So it's been a bit of a wake-up call. Absolutely. I think that, you know, when I started my career uh, 20 years ago, it was an impossible task. Um, even 10 years ago, when Positive Luxury was born, um, it was still difficult. And we have gone through many, many waves, but now is here to stay. Legislation is in our side for the first time in history, and more legislation is coming into play. 
especially with uh, Europe and the Green Deal in the US, uh, in Singapore, in China. So actually, it, everywhere in the world is becoming tighter and harder for corporations to get away with greenwashing, which is actually is a good news because companies that are really truly investing in sustainability will become A, more profitable, uh, and B, will remain relevant to the younger consumer, which they do not conceive a world that sustainability is no part of it. What sort of criteria do these companies have to pass if they're going to be recognised as a sustainable luxury brand? We don't have a blended score, meaning that you don't have to have an average. We actually require a minimum of 50% on social, 50% on environment, 50% on governance and 50% on innovation, which basically means that your actually your blended score has to be a minimum of 50%. And this is kind of tough, but at the same time, incredibly informative because it's an iterative process. So the first time that the organization comes to positive luxury, what we do is we help them to understand where they are. And then um, as we start working with them, we help them to understand what are the impacts, what are the dependencies, what are the gaps, uh, what is the material risk for the business? And then what are the opportunities to actually turn their business more sustainable? At the moment, being sustainable is an option. Should it be made mandatory? It's happening. So in COP26, I'm almost going to say COP27 because I'm thinking about Egypt at the moment. COP26 has been a definitive point for uh, companies to really understand uh, the fact that sustainability is no longer an option. So Mark Carney, the uh, ex-Chancellor of the Bank of England, have created a task force called the TCFD, and this is a new disclosure framework in which the investment community is subscribing to. So, you know, when before it was optional, today, if you want to borrow money, you will have to prove how your company is sustainable or compliant to ESG, which is Environmental Social Governance, um, framework. Do you think that customers, when they're buying a Gucci handbag or a Rolex watch or a Rolls Royce, really care about sustainability? They want the brand, they want the luxury, don't they? Yes, they do want the brand, but they ask questions because their friends will think about, okay, what does that watch or that car say about you? So do you actually rather own a Rolls Royce or a Tesla? That is completely two different messages in terms of what are you showing up in the world about. So I think that is the fact that you do want the watch, you do want the car, you do want your clothes. But actually, you want to tell a story that goes beyond the material um, of the actual thing that you buy. And I think that's why the stories are very, very important, especially with Instagram and social media and so on. People want to be able to show out uh, or show up in the world in a way that tells a great story about who they are. And that's what brands do. They help you to tell a great story about who you are. And if that brand is not in sync with your values, then is where the, the issue happens. That's why I keep saying that, you know, the younger generations uh, wants to show up, show up in the world in a way that it's basically conscious and more friendly to the planet and to people. So... I think that is where the disconnect in terms of brands will become uh, much more apparent. Diana Verde Nieto, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come here on the agenda, 
how much would you pay for a virtual handbag? Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. One of the industries most affected by the COVID pandemic was, of course, travel. But now that restrictions have mostly been eased around the world and we can fly once again, what has the impact been on high-end luxury, cultural and educational tourism been? And are there any changes that uh, would be temporary or permanent? Joining me now is Adam Seba, Chief Executive of luxury travel company The Luminaire. Adam, how would you describe the aims and ambitions of the Luminaire? When we set up the business, we realized that there was no travel company that created substantive, enriching, um, engaging and accessible experiences for a younger generation, the 30 to 50 year olds who are really curious about the world, want to have experiences as couples or with their children, and want to learn something or learn a skill on um, on their travels, whether it's photography or art history um, or astronomy. You know, what they wanted was something like Masterclass in Real Life or TED Talks, very, very engaging um, and accessible experiences, but where they really felt that they were coming away having learned something. So basically, you're not trying to aim at the... Uh, fly and flop market, if I can call it that. No, I think one thing that the pandemic has done is given people an opportunity to think about what they want from their lives. You know, a lot of people um, during the lockdowns thought about writing a novel, getting fit. You know, there was a huge emphasis on, on self-improvement. And businesses like Masterclass saw a huge increase in subscriptions. I think they saw sales go up by 10 times and now that's finished and there is there is a resurgence to travel. People are looking for that element of substantive, enriching experiences when they go away as well. Are they expensive? Because you, you, you just said you're, you're trying to target this a 30 to 50 year old. Normally, the luxury market would, I would suggest, be aimed at slightly older people because they've got more money. Well, I think that um, these types of enriching experiences uh, you know, are available across, uh, you know, a range of different price points. We're a high service um, business. And of course, you know, high service levels come at a price. You know, when we founded the business, we understood that our customer base, you know, really wanted to have these enriching experiences, but also do it with a certain level of comfort and, and luxury. COVID, the pandemic had a devastating impact on the travel industry. Uh, especially the luxury market. Is that bouncing back? I think that um, the luxury sector is the one that has bounced back the quickest. You know, we've seen um, a, a huge release of that pent-up demand um, in Europe and the US. Um, and I, I think that, you know, with the continuing lockdowns in China and Asia, we're going to see a second bounce back hopefully later this year when those lockdown restrictions end. We've heard a lot about sustainability uh, becoming an absolute must for the travel sector. Where does sustainability fit into your agenda? Uh, because travel isn't necessarily a very eco-friendly undertaking, is it? I think it's absolutely imperative that all travel companies um, that, that exist now and that start in the future um, have to be 
fully sustainable. There's no room for unsustainable travel companies anymore. And I think that increasingly customers are demanding sustainability um, in, in, the, in, in the companies that they engage with. And that means um, for, for companies like us leading the industry, engaging with the, the supply chain, helping them on the path to carbon neutrality, educating our customers on um, how we engage in an offset process, and ultimately, um, you know, not, not just having uh, a neutral impact, but actually having a positive impact on the environment. Adam Seba, many thanks to you for joining us here on the agenda. Thank you. It's estimated the metaverse and NFTs, non-fungible tokens, could make up to 10% of the luxury market by 2030, offering an extra $50 billion in revenues. But will big brands rise to the challenge? Many originally thought the online market might be incompatible with a truly high-end experience, and the second-hand luxury market was led by startups who took advantage of their hesitation. So will luxury be lured by the metaverse? To find out, I'm joined by Marjorie Hernandez from the digital fashion experts, The Dematerialized. So Marjorie, welcome to the agenda. Can you, can you explain what The Dematerialized is, how it works? Amazing, of course. Thank you, Stephen. So yes, The Dematerialized is a digital fashion marketplace. So basically, we enable creators to enter the digital market and connect with their consumers and their users and sell amazing fantasy fall products to the consumer of the future. So that's what the dematerialize is. And basically we are, if you like to make like a comparison, like the, the far-fetched or the net apporté of, of the metaverse. It all sounds very exciting. It also sounds very yeah. complex. Do the, fashion, <laughs> do the fashions actually exist? Well, it does exist, but it exists in an immaterial way, in a dematerialized way. So if you think about existing in terms of physicality, it doesn't exist, but it does exist in, in many different ways, right? So it's definitely an asset that has tons of creative uh, faculties that it has been crafted, that it has been made by, by incredibly talented people, they have take hours and hours to produce. So it does exist, just not in a material form. So give me the USP, give me the sort of your, your business pitch. We support creators around the globe to enter the market and we are a marketplace. So we do take a fee of those creations. Obviously, we also have a lot of like conflict information and intel about what, what the appetite and we hope in the future to be able to forecast trends and, you know, come up with our own products that really speak to the desires of the user of the future. It's a slightly different kind of like operating model because we don't, our logistics are not as complex as Web2, you know, e-commerce companies. Like our logistics are very slim. People get the product delivered uh, immediately. So it's closer to an experience when you have, when you buy something in the Apple store than the experience of a traditional e-commerce. So it's kind of like a, a, a different kind of like dynamic for, for fashion users. Marjorie Hernandez, <laughs> many thanks for joining us on the agenda. Thank you so much for having me. The famous writer F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. Few would disagree, but what is also certain is that rich or poor, everyone usually wants more. It's part of the human condition. In Britain, during the Middle Ages, having something expensive or not easily attainable was considered bad form. In fact, at the time, the word luxury had derived from the French luxurie, which meant lust and debauchery. Clothing in particular received the most attention as rules were introduced stipulating which classes were allowed to wear what. 
Most indulgent goods included spices or wine, foreign foods that were expensive to import, and very few but the privileged or noble aristocracy could ever dream of consuming. But while luxury items were once only for the very rich, now even middle-class American consumers are demanding luxury in a variety of categories, from accessories, clothes and jewellery, to food, beverages and even underwear. In fact, Boston Consulting Group's research found that consumers today are willing to pay up to 10 times conventional price levels for new luxury items. But not everyone wants to or can afford to pay such huge amounts for fashion accessories. What's luxury for some is commonplace for others. In other words, everyone has a different idea of what luxury is or can be. Some say an expensive watch, a bigger car, a yacht, a foreign holiday. Others, perhaps more grounded, like my guest Luca Solka, aspires to more quality time with his family. But whatever the dreams of living in the lap of luxury, sustainability and good health should really be the ambition for future generations. Coming up on a future agenda, a new online world order. We'll look deeper into the financial upside of the metaverse. But for now, from me, Stephen Cole, and all the agenda team here in London, it's goodbye. <laughs>